Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Well, uh, if you are not familiar with me, because I think I've been gone for 10 years, roughly, uh, my name is Michael Badger, and I'm one of the elders here at uh, Redeemer Church. Uh, I'm so thankful uh, to be back. I've, my wife and I, we've spent roughly the last two and a half weeks, I think, three Sundays at the very least, uh, kind of gallivanting around Tennessee, which is where I'm originally from. Uh, and the reason why we were there is because we have some amazing and wonderful supporters and uh, several churches that actually support this ministry that we're doing up here, that support Redeemer Church. Uh, and so I just want to let you guys know, and I hope you're really encouraged by this, because we have so many people, we have entire congregations of people down south who are constantly praying over Redeemer Church, praying over you guys. They have a, a vested interest, in a, a vested, uh, well, interest may probably is the best word. They have a vested interest in what God is doing up here. They, they truly care. They're praying for you. They're supporting uh, what we're doing. And uh, I just want you guys to be encouraged by that because the body of Christ is, is wonderful and it's amazing. And it's more than just our one local body. And I just, I, I pray that that encourages and gladdens your heart this morning as we dive into the word uh, together. Uh, I am so thankful that we can continue in our series on the book of Colossians. Uh, and last week I was so thankful that you guys were able to sit under the preaching of Pastor Luke from New King. Uh, the passage that he preached on, in this first chapter, verses 15 through 23, they, they kind of really set a tone for the rest of this letter that was written by Paul and sent to the churches of Colossae. And I believe that the thesis statement from this, for this entire letter is actually found in verses 19 through 20 when Paul writes, For in him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so do you, do you see the order of events there? The fullness of deity, the second person of the Trinity, dwelled in Jesus, making him truly man and truly God. And then, once this mysterious union had occurred, Jesus reconciled or made peace to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That was the, that was the order of things, and it's even more clear in the Greek. Jesus became the God-man, so that as verse 21 through 22 says, we who were once alienated and hostile in our minds, constantly doing evil deeds, could through faith in His name be forgiven and reconciled with Him. And we can stand before Him utterly blameless, completely blameless guilt-free, finally free from all that stood as a barrier between us and the love of God. It's a wonderful thing, absolutely. Colossians is a wonderful book, and it, it really hits on that theme again and again and again. And I'm so glad that we can be walking through it with all of you. 
Now, while the first 23 verses of the first chapter was kind of essentially Paul kind of setting up the primary themes of this letter, namely Christ being Lord over all, he actually now switches and speaks to his own ministry to the church that God has called him to. And so in our passage this morning, we will see a few things that are important for us to take notice of. The first being the suffering of Christian ministry. Sounds pretty fun, right? The content of Paul's ministry. It's the second thing. What, is, what, it is, what it is that his ministry actually consists of. The next is the universal ministry responsibility of all believers. And then finally, the power in which Christian ministry is done. And so if you're taking notes this morning, those are essentially my, my subheads for my sermon today. So as you can see, we actually have quite a bit of ground to cover, and so let us jump right in. But first, as always, let's pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, I am so, so thankful that I get to be here yet again with these believers that I, I love and I cherish. And so, Father, as we, as we dive into your word this morning, I pray, God, that it is not ourselves that are, are leading the way, Lord, that it's not our emotions, it's not what we think your word should say, that, that is the guiding principle that we, are, that we are reading your word by, Lord, but I pray that it's your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray that we, we submit to you, we submit to the Holy Spirit, and take hold of the things that you want us to learn this morning. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So, as we begin this morning, I want to draw our attention to the first half of verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Talking to the church in Colossae. Paul is... As he's writing this letter to the Colossian church, he's saying that he's actually suffered a great deal because of his ministry to the church. And not, not really just the church in Colossae, but to the, the church in general, to the ancient church in general. He has suffered a lot in his desire to minister to them. And now this, this whole theme of suffering is not one that is really new to us here at Redeemer. If you've been with us for kind of a, a stretch of time, you, you might know that we've preached on it several times, this, this theme of suffering. But I think it's still worth pointing out again and spending just a moment on because the idea of rejoicing in our suffering is actually one that is at odds with our current culture of comfort, right? We do everything that we can to avoid suffering. And when we do experience it, finding a reason to rejoice in it actually sounds a bit ludicrous or, or, or maybe to the extreme side of things, even maybe masochistic. But that's precisely what Paul is doing here. That's exactly what he's doing here. He doesn't say, now I am suffering for your sake. I'm just making the blanket statement, I'm suffering for your sake. That's not, that's not what he says. He says, I am rejoicing in my suffering for your sake. Like, the emphasis here is on the rejoicing. Now, to be clear, the suffering that Paul is experiencing did not come about because of some sinful decision he made. It's not because of sin 
that he is suffering. 1 Peter 4.15 makes it clear that suffering for your own sin is a reproach. Meaning, there is a lot of suffering that can come from sinful actions and lifestyles that in the immediate moment do not call for joyous elation, but actually calls for repentance. And knowing that, that forgiveness can come to you for that repentance, then you can rejoice. But, but in the immediate, suffering for sin calls for repentance. But the suffering that Paul was experiencing here was different. He says that his suffering was for the sake of the church. Specifically being in prison in Rome for preaching and teaching the gospel. Now he is suffering for the sake of the church, but that still leaves the question open, why is he rejoicing? Well, put simply, Paul had a very robust understanding of what suffering for the church, for the sake of the gospel, actually accomplishes. He understood that suffering for Jesus and his church is not meaningless or without purpose. Because that's often what we think of suffering. We often think that the suffering that we experience in our lives is meaningless. And we're just suffering for suffering's sake. That's not what Paul believed here. Look at the words. These are words that, that, that Paul knew and that he, that he held on to. Look at these words from Jesus, from his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. And here, Jesus announced a blessing on those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, who are reviled and slandered falsely on account of beating, being obedient to Jesus. For all of that, Jesus says what? He says, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad in this suffering because you have a reward that is waiting for you in heaven. And so for Paul, this truth that there is a reward that awaits those who suffer for the name of Christ in heaven was not some abstract concept that he simply pondered on. It was a reality for him. It was reality. He knew it to be true. And so he actually experienced that joy. He felt it deep within his heart. Now, so often we look at the Bible and we, we see that we should be joyous in our suffering. We wonder, how, how can we actually feel that? Well, the answer is what, what Paul knew. Because Paul understood that, that his suffering for the sake of the church, for the sake of Jesus, was, as he says in Philippians 1.29, a divine gift. A gift that he says in Romans produces endurance and character and the hope of our reward that waits for us in heaven. That's why he could rejoice. Because he knew that to be true and sometimes we struggle to know that to be true. And so like Paul, we should not shy away from suffering for the name of Christ, which is our natural inclination. It's my natural inclination. As I said earlier, our, our, our natural human tendency is to actually run from that which brings suffering and hardship, is it not? And if we are in the midst of suffering, we, again, myself included, do, do all but rejoice in it. And I believe we do this because we do not have a proper understanding of what that suffering, through the power of the Holy Spirit, produces in us, not just in us, but also for us. Let me give you an example that I recently read in a book. 
that I've been working my way through. And maybe you've actually heard this story or this example before. It's not, not anything new. But there's a, a fascinating phenomenon in nature when a moth emerges from its cocoon. But it can only actually emerge from it after intense struggling and effort. And one day a man came across a cocoon and you could actually see that there's this moth inside that was struggling to, to free itself from within the cocoon. And so in effort to help, the man snipped a small slit in the cocoon. And soon the moth crawled out of the newly made opening, but its wings were shriveled and weak. And as the man continued to watch, the moth's wings refused to stretch out and take flight. That moth was now doomed to crawling for the rest of its days in frustration of never really being able to reach the potential of being this beautiful creature that God designed it to be. You see, what the man in the story did not realize was that the struggle to emerge from the cocoon was an essential part of the developing muscle system in the moth, right? By unwisely seeking to cut short the moth's struggle, the man actually crippled the moth not allowing it to grow and develop the way that God intended. Now, I tell this story because the trials and suffering that we experience in this life are much like that cocoon. God uses them to develop our spiritual muscle system, if you will. God does not intend to develop our Christian character. And then listen closely here, because this is a truth that often gets, gets glossed over. But God does not intend to develop our Christian character without difficulties in this life. Placing your faith in Jesus is, is not a ticket to an easy life. Often it's, it's another difficult thing to put on top of your already difficult life. Heavenly treasures and fruits of the Spirit are cultivated, as Jerry Bridges says, in the womb of adversity. And when we find ourselves in the midst of that adversity and suffering, we often, like the man in the story, desperately want God to snip the cocoon of adversity we find ourselves in and release us from it. But just as God has more wisdom and love for that moth than the man did, so he has for us, even more so than we have for ourselves. The difficulties and sufferings that we face will not be removed, and actually should not be removed, from us until the good purposes that God intends for them to accomplish in our lives is complete. And that's why we should not shy away from the slander, or the mockery, or whatever else may come our way for preaching the cross boldly and unapologetically. Now, it's not wrong to pray for deliverance from suffering. It's not, it's not necessarily wrong. But we also must pray for a joyful heart in our suffering. Because God is working in it for your good, and more importantly, His glory. Now, the second half of this verse is, actually caused a lot of confusion for a lot of people. Let me, let me read the verse in full to get the whole context of it. Going back to the very beginning, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. 
Now, if that isn't a difficult verse right for misunderstanding, I don't know what is. That's a really complicated verse that seems really confusing, but I actually want to start by explaining what this verse does not mean. What this verse does not mean. What Paul is not saying here is that there was some sort of deficiency in the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. That is not what he is saying. He does not mean that the torment that Jesus went through in His brutal death on the cross was insufficient for our salvation and therefore must be supplemented by Paul. That would go completely against the clear teaching of Scripture and even against the central message of the letter to the Colossians as Pastor Luke talked on last week. But again, that leaves us with the question, what does this enigmatic, this seemingly odd text actually mean? Well, here's what I believe it to mean, and I have to be honest with you, I actually adopted this view from John Piper. In his book, Desiring God, he addresses this verse, and he he says this, Paul's suffering complete Christ's afflictions, not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they are deficient in worth, as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions is not known and trusted in the world. And so the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. They must be carried by the ministers of the Word. And those ministers of the Word complete or fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. And he continues by saying, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of His people. Our calling, the calling of the church is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. Since Christ is no longer on earth, He wants His body, the church, you and I, believer, to reveal His suffering in its suffering. I believe that is the best explanation for this passage. The suffering of the church, of of you and I, for Jesus' name, is serving a very important and holy function. In that suffering, the world around us is getting glimpses of Jesus. They're getting these, these small snippets of Jesus. They're getting a glimpse of the cross. Getting a glimpse of His suffering for the sake of sinners. That's why I believe this passage, what Paul is saying in this passage. Now, Paul continues in verse 25. First, by telling us that he became a minister of the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to him for you. Kind of reiterating what he mentioned in in verse 1 of the first chapter, that his apostolic calling was sovereignly given to him by God. But then he goes into what kind of is the meat of his ministry, what the meat of his ministry truly is. He continues in verse 25 through 26, and he says, To make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That is the primary objective of Paul's ministry. To make the word of God fully known. And again, this is something that we must cling on to. Because Paul didn't just make the bits that that kind of makes 
other people feel comfortable or, or just the bits that he felt comfortable to make known. Not just the things that would tickle the people's ears, not just the things that, would make, that wouldn't make waves in the minds and hearts of those around him. He wanted to make all of God's word known. All of it. The easy parts and the difficult parts. Specifically, a mystery that was hidden for generations. Now, before we talk about what this mystery is, I want to I clear something up. And I, and I believe Ethan actually mentioned this in his sermon already. But I want to mention it again, just to make, just make it clear who the saints are. That's, that's kind of what I want to talk about real quick. Because Paul says that this mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to God's saints. As I think I'm sure Ethan mentioned before, the Roman Catholic Church has actually done much to damage and distort the doctrine of saints. According to Catholic, the Catholic Church, saints are, are essentially super-Christian, high-level Christians. Christians who have risen above the rest and have performed remarkable feats and through a process called canonization become officially inducted into the pantheon of saints. And these saints become intercessors in heaven that those who are still living may pray to. Though official Catholic doctrine would say that Catholics are just supposed to ask the saints to pray along with them. But in actual practice, that's not what it looks like. Most actually pray to the saints. And if this sounds a lot like how Hindu gods work, it is because it is. There's a lot of different saints for a lot of different, uh, different things in life. And again, if you look at Hinduism and the Hindu gods, it matches up. You pray to a certain kind of Hindu god for a certain specific uh, circumstance in your life, hoping for a certain specific outcome, and that's exactly what the Catholic Church does with the saints. Now, this is wrong and heretical on many levels. But it also goes against what the New Testament teaches about who saints actually are. Again, as, as Paul mentioned before, or sorry, as Ethan mentioned before, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, because he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints in Christ Jesus, or sorry, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so, Christian, this means that you are a saint. You are a saint. If you call upon the name of Jesus in faith, you, my friend, are a saint. Even if today maybe you don't feel quite saintly, doesn't matter. You are a saint. All right, so now we got that squared away. Let us talk about this mystery that has been now revealed to all of us saints. Paul explains the mystery in verse 27, saying to them, meaning the saints, meaning you and I, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And here is the mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The mystery that we as the saints enjoy is not that not only can the believing Jews experience salvation, but also the Christians in Colossae who are Gentiles can experience salvation too. And they too now have Jesus living inside of them. But more importantly, this, this mystery is not so much that the Gentiles would actually be saved. That's, that's not necessarily the mystery. That, that wasn't really all that much of a mystery. The Old Testament actually speaks 
fairly frequently of salvation being available to the Gentiles. But rather, the true mystery was the fact that Jesus not only lived in Christian Jews, but also in Christian Gentiles, and what that truth actually meant. It meant, as Ephesians 2 and 3 says, that the Gentiles would be saved as fellow citizens and fellow heirs, members of the same body with Jewish believers. Now the significance of this is that the mystery that has now been revealed is that Jews and Gentiles are no longer two distinct peoples, but they are now what Ephesians calls one new man, equal in every way in Christ Jesus. And so just like the Jewish believers, the Gentiles are ushered into the body of Christ and now had Him living in their hearts. And there's no division or disunity in the body of Christ. All believers everywhere belong to Jesus equally. And this now revealed mystery is a wonderful and beautiful thing. Paul even uses the language in verse 27, the riches of the glory of this ministry or mystery. So this means, believer, whether you are a Jew or Gentile, the Lord of glory now lives and abides in you. And He is not above or below or beside, but He is in you. He lives within you. This is so amazing for so many of us because I, I know I'm not the only one who, who maybe at times feel like they struggle with, with loneliness or, or isolation or feeling like they're the only one going through a particular, a particular painful circumstance in their life and you feel like you're, you're by yourself. Well, if you're a believer in this room, that is not true. It's not true. You have the Lord of glory inside of you, living in you, ministering to you. His glorious presence is always with you. How amazing is that? But here's another thing to remember. When we see that phrase or hear those words at the end of verse 22, or sorry, 27 rather, the hope of glory, we can sometimes miss what that glory actually is. We can often think all the beauty and all the splendor of heaven or the new earth that is to come or our new bodies that we will receive that will be glorified and like that of Jesus or maybe even seeing our believing friends and family members that have passed away again, we sometimes mistakenly think that is the glory. Those are the treasures that await for us in heaven. But friends, that is not what verse 27 says. Let me read it again and see if you can identify the true definition of the glory that we hope for. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, did you, did you catch it? It is Christ Himself that is our hope of glory. It's Christ. It's Him, the one that lives inside of you. That's the hope of glory. The same storm says this. He says, Christ is not simply the reason we can hope for glory. Christ Himself is that glory. 
He is the glory. The glory for which we long. The glory for which we have been predestined. The glory that makes all suffering and pain and disappointment in this life unworthy of comparison is the person and presence of Jesus Christ himself. He is our glory. Being with him. Able to know him, to see him, to relish him and rejoice in his beauty. That's the glory for which we hope for. Everything else is just icing on the cake. All the promises of God about what our heavenly future holds are, are, are wondrous and glorious and are for us to rejoice in. But, but brothers and sisters, none more so than the glory of the unfettered, unobstructed presence of the friendship that we will share with Jesus for all eternity. So don't forget, our hope is Christ. All these other things that, that go on top of that are, are wonderful. That's not your ultimate hope. Don't put your hope in, in those things. Put your hope in Christ. He is our great reward that brings songs of praise on the lips of Paul in his suffering. That is the content of Paul's ministry. It was to make the glory of Christ known to all, Jews and Gentiles alike. But... Brothers and sisters, that was not only Paul's ministry. That is our ministry as well. Let's take a quick look at verse 28. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so Paul not only described his Christian ministry as proclaiming the gospel, but also warning and teaching. Paul did not believe that proclaiming the gospel and warning and teaching were only his responsibility, however. Look at the language that he uses in this verse. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now you may think that you can get yourself off the hook here, by thinking that the we that Paul is using is referring to himself and, and maybe the other apostles. Or maybe even the elders of the various churches in the ancient world. So maybe he's not actually referring to just the, the average believer. But that is not so. If we flip ahead a few chapters to chapter 3, Paul is telling the Christians in the church of Colossae to teach and administer each other in all wisdom. So I'm not going to spend much time on this topic because we'll be talking about this in more length in a few weeks or so. But suffice it to say, what Paul is saying here is that there is a universal ministry responsibility that we all share. All of us. Every single one of us. And that is to proclaim Christ and to warn and teach one another. In the context of this passage, Paul is referring to warning and teaching other believers. We are to warn each other about the dangers of lingering sin in each other's lives. We are to warn each other about the cancer of bitterness in an unforgiving heart. About the pitfalls of lust and greed. About the emptiness of being tempted to falling into worldly philosophies or, or false doctrines. To warn each other of our need to repent and seek Jesus when we do fall to temptation. And we are to teach each other true and life-giving doctrine. 
to teach one another that we must trust and lean on Christ in all things, to teach one another to pray, to read Scripture, and to be integrated into the local body of believers. And all this warning and teaching is to be done, as Paul says, in wisdom. Which again, we'll dive more into in a later sermon. But again, this ministry is for all believers. If you proclaim Christ in this church, if you are here at Redeemer today, and you believe in Christ Jesus, you have a responsibility to warn and teach your fellow Christian. To always point one another to Christ and everything that you do in relation to the Christian that is sitting next to you should always, always be done with the goal of seeing them presented before God as spiritually mature in Christ. Your desire for the Christian next to you should be to see them grow in what is called sanctification, which simply means their Christ-likeness. You should be invested in the faith of your brother and sister in Christ. And this is why the author of the book of Hebrews commands Christians to not neglect the gathering of themselves. Because just as you should desire to grow in your own love, in your own fellowship with Jesus, so should you desire to see that same thing for your brother and sister in Christ. Now, I know this is a hard teaching. This is one that we often don't like because when we think of church, often in our culture, we think of just some place where we come on Sunday mornings, we get our, our spiritual filled, and we just kind of go out and live our own lives. We're taught day in and day out that faith is a personal thing. And it shouldn't matter what the person next to you, or, uh, it shouldn't matter where they are in their walk with Jesus or whatever they believe, that, that your spiritual journey is your own spiritual journey. Well, Scripture says that is ridiculous doesn't say that at all. It is important. And your relationship with Christ is important, and you should focus on it. But if you are completely disconnected with the other Christians in your local area, friends, it's not right. It's not what Christ intended. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters. Love them enough for that. Each of you are called to that universal Christian ministry. You have a duty to love one another in this way. So I want to ask, ask you to ask yourself as you leave here this morning, am I taking hold of this ministry that not, not maybe I'm called to, that you are called to? Now, let's take a look at our last verse. Verse 29. Paul says, For this meaning proclaiming Christ and presenting everyone mature in Christ, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Now, at first glance, we yet again have another complicated and confusing saying from Paul. He's really good at coming up with those. On one hand, he is toiling away and struggling to present these believers as mature in Christ. And, and man, he definitely is. Christian ministry is a difficult business, which Paul knew very well. And the reason is because we are often called, each one of us, to say things to others that they do not like to hear. We can often be called to walk with people through some of the most dark and difficult seasons of their life. Christian ministry, whether you are a pastor or a layman, is difficult. And it is full of struggle. 
Paul had much of this. He often had to correct erroneous beliefs. He had to call for unity. He was stoned and arrested, mocked and slandered by those in the world, and not just in the world, but also in the church too. He certainly struggled and toiled. And toiled here in the Greek meaning exhausted and weary. He was exhausted and weary from ministry. But he says that he is struggling and toiling with all God's energy that he powerfully works in him. Now this may seem confusing because we often think if God is working powerfully through someone, then the words struggle and toil should not really be how they would define their ministry or their life. Right? We often think that if we are struggling and toiling as we are going about doing what God has called us to do, then it, then it, or sorry, we often think that if we are doing what God is wanting us to do, and we are doing it in His power, then it should come easy to us. And we should see immediate results. That's obviously a display of God's power. And if that's not what we experience, if we experience struggle and toil, then we often throw our hands in the air and we just give up. That's why burnout is very common in pastoral ministry especially in places like New England. Oh, by the grace of God. But again, that is not the perspective of Paul in the slightest. Paul did not see his toil and struggle in ministry as evidence of the lack of power of God. Rather, he saw the power of God working through him as that which allowed him to persevere in his struggling and toil. See, God's power is not designed to eliminate our responsibility to work hard, but to enable us to do it. Paul is able to work hard because God is working mightily through him. He toils because of God's power. And so, friends, God's power works through our struggling, enabling us to accomplish his purposes for our lives. We are able to labor for the gospel. We are able to labor to proclaim Jesus to unbelievers everywhere. We are to toil to see each other mature in our relationship with Christ, knowing that His divine power is moving through you, allowing you to serve and love and minister to others and not lose heart. So, as I wrap up this sermon, Remember that God has called each and every one of you into ministry. All of you. Ministry is not simply something for pastors. It is for you. And your ministry will include preaching the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners through faith and faith alone in His work on the cross. And it will include difficult things, such as warning your brothers and sisters. And, and it will include rewarding things, such as teaching each other about the beauty of God. But it will be difficult. And you will labor. And you will have times of immense struggling and even suffering. But what will allow you to persevere in the ministry that God has called you to is the power of God working through your struggles and your suffering. Friends, as difficult as it is, it is immensely worth it. Why? Because of the hope that has been set before us. 
which is our Lord Jesus, who is our treasure and our glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we often say, Lord, sometimes erroneously, that, that Lord, we, we wish you would speak to us, God, but you have given us your word. If we want to hear your voice, all we have to do is go to our Bibles and we, we can listen to you. And we can grow in our relationship with you. We can enter into the throne room of grace and even speak to you. Not only that, but you desire for us to do it. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that, that we heed your word this morning. Lord, if we're, we're trying to figure out, God, your will for our lives, it's right here. Your will for us is to proclaim your gospel to everyone around us. Your will for our lives is to teach and warn each other. To see each other grow in our relationship with you. And Father, though we know there's going to be difficulties and struggles in this life, I pray, God, that, Lord, that we see that it is worth it. It is worth it because we get you. And there'll be coming a day, Lord, where we will struggle and toil no longer. And we'll just be able to rest as we walk alongside of you forever. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name.